0: Cinephile, Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. Oh, this is incredible. Moonlight right. won oh. this picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. Alright, There's baseball in World War II. It's kind of a dream. <laughs> Cinephile. The Adnan Verk movie podcast. All right, yes, why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. going to run that in the open. It's a clever, stylish, entertaining blockbuster designed to give one's inner child the cinema equivalent of a sugar rush. That's Gary Dowell of Dark Horizons, his review of Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, one of the films that we will be reviewing. Great to have you with us, as always, on Cinephile. It's been a minute, but we always appreciate you. Please do subscribe to the podcast and rate and review on iTunes. Thanks so much to everybody who had such kind words, uh, tweets and such, and comments that were sent to me about the review of the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which is Judd Apatow's documentary, which you can see on HBO Parts 1 and 2. A man Adam Amin saying he sees a lot of himself in Gary Shandling with all the battles with insecurity. I told "Mean we are all Gary Shandling in some way or another. My buddy Puffy was telling me, yeah, I, I feel like I understand you better now after seeing uh, the Shandling documentary. And speaking of my buddy Puffy, a good friend of his is Mark Razzo. And Mark Razzo is a new film which is out on Netflix this Friday, April 20th. It's called Kodachrome. Mark sent me a copy of it. It's excellent. It stars Jason Sudeikis and Ed Harris. It's a father-son story. It's about nostalgia and memory. And it's really well done. I'm really excited that Mark is going to join us today to talk about his Film. We'll also have our usual reviews and segments as well. Uh, so let's kick it off first with Paterno. It's Pacino as Paterno. And this was a story that I couldn't wait to see. And I know a lot of people were squeamish just because of the subject matter. And do we really need to revisit or relive uh, what happened there at Penn State? But I was always confident. I was telling people. You know, I think the combination of Pacino, particularly Barry Levinson as a director, that they're going to be very tasteful of this. This isn't going to be an exploitive film. I did not anticipate there would be scenes in the shower, et cetera, and there is not. It's a film that um, obviously deals with the subject matter, but does so, I thought, in a tasteful manner. And it really focuses on just that section where Paterno's entire life unravels. He sets the all-time wins record of 409 in, in FBS in college football And then the Sandusky story comes out and then all of a sudden everything unravels and it goes from him just not wanting to delve into it. I haven't read it. I haven't read it. It's a constant refrain of the of the movie of his sons telling him to check it out or uh, personal advisors, his wife. He said, well, I've got a game to coach. I've got a game to worry about. I don't have time for this. The courts will settle it. They'll deal with Jerry and figure it out. And then eventually he realizes too late. And this is literally days later that, no, no, this is actually a mountain to overcome. And he gets fired. And two months later, he dies. And so it's a spectacular story. I remember David Lloyd, a sports center anchor, a friend of ours, was telling me, he goes, you know, just from from an outsider's perspective, you don't know anything about sports. It is a spectacular story. And he goes, I don't want to use that word in the wrong manner, that adjective, because you say, well, how in the world could a story about child abuse be anything spectacular? But if you frame it within this guy's rise and fall and somebody who was so lionized and so revered and how it could all just come crashing down like it's. It's the stuff of epic Shakespearean tragedy. Like it's a King Lear to all of a sudden have this guy who's at the top of the mountain and that monument gets just torn apart and it does so so quickly and so viciously. The film does not make judgments on paternal. They do not make a clear stance of whether or not Joe is a pure villain and somebody who hid what happened for years, nor does it say he's a hero and was unaware of all of it. I think Levinson tries to do a good job of being relatively objective although he leans towards the fact that Joe should have done more, and then I think you get that with the ending, where uh, information comes to light that he knew about this prior to just being told by Mike McQuery, the graduate assistant. But I think the film will best be enjoyed by somebody who doesn't know much about the story and just says, okay, I heard a little bit about it in the news, but, oh, I didn't really know that there was all these twists and turns. Oh, I didn't know that... Uh, there was a cover up at the highest level here involving Penn State Athletics. Oh, I didn't know Paterno was like the de facto president of the school. Like he's, he is bigger than the university. That's how important he is. And Pacino is mesmerizing. He's fantastic in the role. He spoke on Bill Simmons' podcast. What a great get for Bill. He got Levinson and Pacino. Very smart. I kept thinking, how do they get him? Then, of course, Billy mentioned right out of the gate 30 for 30. Levinson did the first 30 for 30 of the band that wouldn't die. By calling called in a favor with Simmons, yeah, I want to bring Al, too? Sure, great. Pacino was great. You should definitely listen to it. But one of the things he told about Paterno was he said it was so important to get the glasses and the nose right. And Pacino said it's so frustrating because he goes, I couldn't wait to get the effing nose off. But that's critical to Paterno. When you think of him, it's always those glasses and the nose. And it made me think about the Dog the Afternoon story that after the first day of rushes, when Pacino was sitting there with director Sidney Lumet, he said, I'm really sorry, but we wasted the whole day. And he said, what do you mean? He goes, we gotta do this again. He goes, I gotta lose the glasses. And he said, he wants to be caught. If not caught, he wants the attention and the adulation. Sonny wants everyone to know that he's the one doing this. So it's very important, Pacino. You know, Mike Newell tells a story in Donnie Brasco said again speaking of glasses he goes Pacino was painstaking getting the right eyewear when it came to Lefty Ruggiero he goes he's got to look like one of those guys who has those old school glasses from the 70s like it cannot be anything stylish he's this relic of the past he's been put out to pasture that helps give Lefty that hang dog look so I just find it fascinating the way Pacino works it's almost like the outside and he wants to get those little details right and then we'll add the Penn State warm-up jacket and all the rest of it and the hunched uh, posture and the voice and And I thought he was terrific because he really conveys um, Paterno's just confusion. I mean, he comes across as this doddering old man who's just mystified by all that's happening around him. And that scene where he actually finally decides to read the report, and he says with absolute candor, what is sodomy? You don't for a second question. This guy has no idea what this is. And I remember thinking at the time, maybe Paterno didn't know. And he says that when McQuarrie was telling him what was happening with Sandusky in the shower, he goes, it was just some funny business. Like, I don't know. It was just some stuff going on. Like, it wasn't ever laid out explicitly, at least in Joe's words. That he just knew something was going on. shouldn't be done. And I reported it and I took care of it. And that, of course, becomes the crux of the movie. Yes, by the letter of the law, Joe Paterno did what he was obligated to do, which is tell his... Uh, superiors that something went on nefarious uh, between one of his assistants. He did not, though, take the moral responsibility to then follow up and find out what happened with the kid, or to ask McQuarrie more about it, or to ask his superiors about it. He simply took the issue, and just as if you were filing a report, he filled it out, there it was, and never thought about it again. And it really is heartbreaking when you see what happened to these kids. What I I wasn't sure if I totally agree with Levinson's approach. He tells it primarily paternal, but he's also really telling the story about the fifth estate and the journalism of the story. And I think that's probably because the reporter was one of the consultants on the movie. So you've got the story which has shades of spotlight here at times because it's about the journalist uncovering the story and the fact that she works for the small-time paper in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania, and she's not ready for the bright lights as now the national media descends. I didn't necessarily care for those sections of the movie. I thought they were fine and maybe accurate to true-to-life Obviously, she worked as a consultant. I'm sure she wants to have her story told as well. But I just wasn't as interested in the journalistic aspects of it. I wish the movie had shown more on Paterno. And that's my primary quibble of the movie. I'm giving it three maple leaves because I thought it was tasteful and well done. And Pacino's terrific but I did think it was a rare movie that could have been longer. It's an hour and 42 minutes, and I thought this could have been, this type of material with Paterno is ripe for a six-hour miniseries. I thought you could have made an incredible story. I mean, this is like an Angels in America type thing, which Pacino won an Emmy for playing Best Actor, playing Roy Cohn uh, in that adaptation for HBO. Also won an Emmy for playing Jack and You don't know Jack. So, real stretch of biopics here. Pacino, according to Gold Derby, and I am one of the Emmy experts on there as well, right now he's the favorite to win Best Actor Emmy. This should be his third Best Actor Emmy all for playing real life characters. Eight Oscar nominations only one nomination for playing a true character. That would be Frank Serpico which he did not win for in 1973. So interesting how biopics seem to have worked out well for him and of course he's going to play Jimmy Hoffa in The Irishman coming out next year. But overall I thought it was a good film. I'd recommend it to people. I've seen some criticisms. People thought there wasn't enough action. They thought it kind of just ended was a little bit flat Um, but I thought it was a good
1: film and I would recommend it. Dan Stanzik also saw it The floor is yours. I did, and I have two questions, or at least one point. First, on the journalism, I've got to defend my journalist's credibility here. Yeah, I think in today's day and age, especially in light of the Michigan State situation, a lot of people are viewing these scandals and saying, how did something like this go on for so long, and how did no one know anything, and how come this wasn't reported, and why are we only fighting about this now? So I think it was crucial in the film to say that that journalist, Sarah Gannum, she was like, I wrote an article six months ago, and right. nothing happened. Like she, she found the details, she caught wind of it, she reported it. She was the first one to touch base with one of the victims, the first one that uh, testified, right. and she writes an article, and nothing comes of it. It just, I think, it proves the point of the power of Penn State and the football program in that community.
0: Gotcha. I guess that does make sense, and you're right. You're trying to show the cover-up and the depths of it, and the journalism did help to uncover And
1: it. I am slightly biased as a you know media pusher, so I, I, I'm all for that aspect. Also, secondarily, yeah. question for you, yeah. and it's something we talked about this morning before you showed up, how long in time do you need to wait before you make a movie about something? Yeah, that's a tricky
0: one. I feel like generally, and I'm just throwing this out there, 10 years, because I feel like people, you you want to have some new material uncovered, and it feels like after ten years that maybe some other stories come out. There's been a book published. There's been new facts discovered, etc. With Paterno being released, and I didn't necessarily have an issue with it being released now, but I, I did not feel watching the movie that there was new information that was learned that the guys like you and me who work in this industry that didn't already know.
1: Because Wahlberg did the movie on the Boston Marathon bombings right right away. I mean, three or four years after the fact. Right. But it's. It felt quick, though. It felt quick, and I remember him saying at the time he wanted to make sure it was done the right way because there was a bunch of movies in the works, and he wanted to make sure the right message was delivered, and I understand that to a certain point, but if something happens a year ago, do we need a movie about it? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I'm with you.
0: I like to I like to give it a few years to give it some pause, give it historical perspective, give it context. Like when 9-11 happened, of course, horrific tragedy. Oliver Stone waited a few years before making his 9-11 movie, and it wasn't a very good movie, to be honest with you, so it wasn't like that film gave us new perspective on it. Especially stories like that, I find that, you know, the documentaries that I see about it, the real life news are so much more powerful than whatever the fiction tries to convey. But I think that is definitely a worthy topic of conversation you raise. People are saying, do we really need a paternal movie right now? And Barry Levinson, to his credit, you can listen again to the podcast with Simmons. He said he thought it was a good story, and and he wanted to tell it, and that was his perspective on it. So I give it three Maple Leafs. It's currently available on HBO. Also, Steven Spielberg's new movie, Ready Player One, which I enjoyed. I, I wouldn't say I was reluctant, but it wasn't like I'm the ultimate fanboy that wants to go see this movie. Um, I had not read the book, but I said, you know what? It's been a while. It's been a little lean here in this open early going of the 2018 film season. Let's go check it out. And I was pleasantly entertained. I give it three Maple Leafs. I thought it was a a welcome return to Spielberg's populist roots. Uh, In many ways, it was interesting because it could be a movie that could have dove into self-parody. The broad base plot line is this. It's now in the future, 2045. People put on virtual reality glasses to escape the doldrums and melancholy of their current life, which <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us could feel like right now. They'd like some virtual reality glasses. Um But they put on the glasses, they go to a different universe, and all of a sudden you've got a, a different world. And I, I agree with the critics who said it feels like it's analogous to, to um you know, maybe... Uh, I think it feels like a journey that Spielberg would have taken in the past. And it's funny, he doesn't want to go back to nostalgia. Like, the character is, ends up being involved with all these 1980s pop culture references. And yet Spielberg took very careful, um, steps to make sure to remove those in his film adaptation. Meaning he did not want to have E.T. in the movie. He didn't want to have certain other things. But the 80s nostalgia is what makes the movie a lot of, a lot of fun because the soundtrack, they've got Twisted Sister and they've got, you know, Back to the Future references with the Flying DeLorean and, other touchstones like that and in fact the best part of the film is when they have that happen when they have this scene where the characters end up going to the shining and it's amazing i mean it's it's the best sequence of the movie that the characters don't realize that they're in the shining and you've got this unbelievable scene where the bloodbath comes up and so it's it's awesome to see spielberg paying tribute to a great filmmaker in kubrick by inserting his characters in one of Kubrick's movies, yet doing it with his own twist in Room 237 and what that all entails. Honestly, I'm not overstating by saying that movie, that scene alone almost makes the movie worth watching. This, when, when Spielberg is paying homage to The Shining and has those characters in Ready Player One go there. Typical Spielberg, the ending's a little bit cheesy. That's kind of something he can never really get away with. And it seemed a little cornier than some of his more recent endings. But he was really honest at the South by Southwest Festival where it premiered and said, listen, this is a movie, not a film. He just made The Post three months ago, and that is a capital S serious movie intended for serious film goers and trying to get Academy Awards. And it won. It was nominated for two awards. Uh, did not win. But this is where you say, listen, popcorn picture, nothing wrong with it. Enjoy it. Entertain it. It's done well at the box office. Ready Player One. I think some have read the book, had some quibbles with it, but I did not, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun ride, although the lead character is a little bit leaden. It's interesting for Spielberg to make him with so much great eye candy. The lead character is a little bit vanilla couple of movies I wanted to mention quickly. King in the Wilderness, a Martin Luther King documentary. It's currently available on HBO. I saw that in the 50th anniversary of his assassination on April 4th. It's an excellent documentary. And uh, i look back at the last few years of Dr. King's life, kind of like what I was saying about Paterno, you know, I didn't feel like I learned a whole lot more about Joe Posh's story, even though it was tasteful and well done. In in terms of King of the Wilderness, I did learn some things uh because they focused on those last couple of years. One of which is he had a really good sense of humor. One of the guys close to him said that he would never criticize you or tease you if you were sensitive and he could recognize that. But if you could take it, he would. And he said Dr. King would enjoy um you know taking the mick out of guys here and there, which he thought was kind of fun. Also, and I've always heard this discuss, people have mentioned the affairs he had, and they Joan Baez noted peace actors, made a really good point. She said, you know, people mention that Dr. King's uh, personal failings, you know, you have no idea what he was up against. You have no idea how he's trying to change the world and the pressures he was under. So he's still a human being at heart. You know, he's not. he is not a figment of our imagination. And so when he's trying to tackle these enormous challenges, when his life is always on the line, when he's leading these marches, which are ending in violence and bloodshed, much as he preaches peace, you know, Sometimes people have moral failings and that's what he was about, but it's wrong for people to try to criticize him or critique that or to focus on that and to get away from his image um, and his life, which is that he changed the world. And those last few years, what's really startling about the documentary and quite sad is he really had the sense of fatalism the last few months. And the last time he left his wife and kids, you know, he was saying to one of his friends, like, I really got to spend more time at home. His kids were even more needy than normal. They just wouldn't let him go when he was leaving. He said, OK, I've got to make some changes here. I've got to figure out a way that I can spend some more time at home. And even by the end, his close friends, and that's how the documentary unfolds, it's all of his close friends and collaborators telling stories about him Said that he, he could really sense that the end was near. And Jesse Jackson's actually in the room, the hotel room where he's uh, assassinated. He tells that story. It is tough to listen to and tough to imagine how anybody could ever overcome that. But King of the Wilderness is a very good documentary. I give it three and a half Maple Leafs. It's currently available on HBO all but the last few years of Martin Luther King's life. And lastly, I just want to mention Becoming Cary Grant, which actually came out last year at the Cannes Film Festival. It's now available on Showtime, one of the movie channels that I have. So I finally got a chance to see it. It's, it's very elusive and enigmatic, much like the main character himself. So it was odd. You're, you're making a documentary in which you want to learn more about the guy. And yet he himself was a bit of a puzzle. So the documentary feels a bit of a puzzle. So it's an odd way of the film and art mirroring the life of the person, which I didn't necessarily mind because you kind of get into this hypnotic mode of watching it. And speaking of hypnotic and trance-like feelings, that's the biggest takeaway from becoming Gary Grant. He dropped acid. He took LSD over a 100 times in his mid-50s. As part of therapy to overcome what was a traumatic childhood and the fact that his mom was taken away to a home uh, when he was just a young man and it was because they had her committed to a mental asylum, even though they didn't necessarily have enough evidence that that's what she was suffering from, but her dad had her committed and years later he reconnected with her and it was really quite a painful episode that he was always trying to overcome And the best line of the documentary is he is quoted as saying everybody wants to become Cary Grant. Even I want to become Cary Grant because he himself was not Cary Grant. He was born Archibald Leach, a guy who grew up working class England and in all of his movies played these really smart, erudite characters who come from the high class and extremely sophisticated. And that's not who he was whatsoever, which is a testament to what a good actor he was, because if you watch his girl Friday and the rat-a-tat patter and the way he works with the likes of Catherine Hepburn, you go, this guy's amazing. Uh, particularly his films with Hitchcock, I love, you know, North by Northwest is so good. Everyone knows about the, the scene with the the crop duster, but the whole movie is excellent. And he's also great in a Hitchcock movie called Notorious. He's excellent in that movie. I really recommend it if you haven't seen it before. Claude Rains uh, plays the villain in that one. But... Uh becoming Cary Grant if you're a real cinephile you love old school movies you love Cary Grant I recommend you checking that one out it's available like I said the the LSD part is kind of shocking Um I wish they'd focused a little bit more on the movies but learning about his life is interesting married four times and the sweetest thing about him is this only had one child but once he had his child late in life he effectively retired from acting and he said it was the greatest production he ever had uh, with his daughter, and his daughter's quoted in the movie, and she says, "You know, we would just stay in. We'd watch movies. He loved watching TV. He would eat ice cream with me. He was a great, great dad." Which you always hear about these showbiz parents. You always feel like they're too busy focused on the work and all those typical cliches. Cary Grant was a dutiful dad and somebody who really enjoyed that. Like he said, it was the best production of his life. Becoming Cary Grant, I give it three Maple Leafs even though it's a little bit murky at times. I did enjoy it because it's something, that, as Dan Sanzik would say, in my wheelhouse is something I enjoy when it comes to old Hollywood. All right, so to recap, paternal available right now on HBO. Three Maple Leafs there. Ready Player One, Three Maple Leafs. Three and a half Maple Leafs for King in the Wilderness, which is on HBO. And also Three Maple Leafs for Cary Grant, Becoming Cary Grant, a very good documentary. I should mention before we get to the interviews, Mark Razzo, director of Kodachrome, and Omar Epps' new film, Traffic. R. Lee Ermey, rest in peace, passing away a terrific actor. Uh, One of the better scenes he had in the movie, Seven, is where he answers the phone and says, this isn't even my desk. He's also great as a sergeant in Toy Story, other memorable roles along the way, but of course nothing will ever top his immortal performance in Full Metal Jacket. When you think of the great performances in terms of scenery, chewing, scene-stealing, R. Lee Ermey, what he does is the drill instructor is at the top of that list. And I've said this before, when it comes to my favorite war movies, you know, there's three and a half, like it's Platoon, Glory, Saving Private Ryan, and the first half of Full Metal Jacket. The second half, I think, falls apart miserably, but the first half is amazing, and it's all because of him. Um, he's amazing, along with Vincent D'Onofrio, because he just makes this guy life, all their lives, absolutely miserable. And the way he uses dialogue and the way he just tears into these guys, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. Honestly, that first hour works on multiple levels because he's jolting you. I mean, it, I, this is what I tweeted. A performance that was profane, savagely funny, and positively terrifying. He's absolutely breathtaking in Full Metal Jacket. And, I mean, you can go online and find clips of it. It's Like I said, I'm laughing because it's horrifying. I couldn't imagine how somebody in that... Uh, arena would be taking it, but to watch it as a fan, it's hysterical. And he says to the guy, you're so ugly, you could be a modern art masterpiece. Um, he's questioning a guy's origins from Texas. He finds out how nice the guy is, what he would do for him. Like it's, I couldn't imagine doing those scenes over and over and especially you knowing Kubrick. I mean, if one take worked, he'd do 37 takes. So the way he was able to keep up that energy and consistency over and over, amazing, amazing work. So rest in peace, Arlie Ermy, So incredible in full metal jacket among many other films. All right, so those are all the reviews of new films. We're going to have Mark Razzo, a director of a new film called Kodachrome on Netflix, coming up momentarily. But our first guest, Omar Epps, lots of great films of the past. We'll dive into those along with his new movie, Traffic, right now. And joining us now is Omar Epps, the star of his new film, Traffic, also starring Paula Patton in theaters, Friday, April 20th. We'll get into that in just a second. But Omar, I want to revisit some of those classics from the past. When I was telling people around here at ESPN, we're going to be talking to Omar Epps. The first thing they said to me is, ask him about Juice. Ask him about Tupac. Give me a Tupac story <laughs> right out of the gate.
2: Oh uh, Man, Pac was, Pac was awesome, man. Pac was everything you would have thought he was and
0: more. Yeah, what was he like on set? Like, I, I often think about his music and how powerful it was. And I'm, I, I hear stories from him that was maybe more contemplative than people realize, more quieter than people realize. What was what was he like when it was just you and him interacting?
2: Just a passionate dude, uh, very smart, very well-read, and, and a, you know, a, a super talented artist. And we were just kids. You know, following our dreams, and and we had a blast doing Juice. Just great memories.
0: Uh, it's definitely a movie that has a lot of popularity. And I think of those movies of that era. Another one that comes to mind, of course, is the program. All of us here at ESPN, when we have to put a list together of the best football movies, we think of that yeah. film and uh, you and James Con. And uh, how big a football fan were you? How much of an athlete were you prior to making that movie?
2: Well, I mean. That that for me was like being a kid in a candy store because I played pop Warner football growing up. I thought I was going to be you know starting running back for the Dallas Cowboys one day. Uh, you know I'm a rabid football fan, so you know getting to put on the pads and run around with you know ex pros and guys, ex
0: college players, and
2: take some real hits. <laughs> it was it was a blast.
0: Halle Berry was the romantic lead in that film. What was that like?
2: <laughs> no, she was great. She was great to work with. Um, that that was you know. What can I say?
0: Only <laughs> <laughs> well, well, put it this way. Did you have any, like, anxiety as an actor? Like, oh, my God, it's Halle Berry. I'm trying to be a professional here. No,
2: no, because I was too young, you know, still. I was I was still, I think I was 19 when I did that. So, you know, yeah, I was awestruck by her beauty, but, you know, I was, was an actor on the come up, and, and uh, we had great chemistry.
0: Oh, I totally hear you. You're going to be a professor. we are talk with Omar Epps. His new film is called Traffic. It's in theaters Friday, April 20th. Higher Learnings is a movie I really enjoy. I remember seeing that in theaters, and I love the way that John Singleton put those stories together and uh, Michael Rappaport's character as well. Tell me about that experience of working with John and specifically.
2: That was a powerful experience. It's, it's kind of scary when you think about, you know, how many of those stories parallel to now, um, just in terms of female empowerment and uh, obviously, you know, differences in race and stuff like that and that was just that was a powerful experience for me just as an artist and as a person overall and you know wonderful memories as well
0: yeah how much of it were you involved with the script or did you have your I mean like you said you were a young man at that time well so you can uh put in your own memories your own thoughts how much were you collaborating with John or did you just kind of stick with the script and what he envisioned for you
2: no that one we kind of just stuck with the script because John is just such a prolific filmmaker you know you don't need to deviate (laughs) you know just stick to the script as they say and um man we had a blast Man, ice cube was in that like you said michael rapapour um so a bunch of great actors in that thing
0: a great comedy. If For people who see it, they know it, and I just mentioned to one of our producers, Liam, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. That came out in 1996, the year after Higher Learning. Just when I mentioned yeah. it to him, he just yelled out, Malik! Malik! <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell me about that movie? Well,
2: that was a lot of fun. That's working with family. You know, I, I grew up with, with Marlon and, and his family. Uh, we went to high school together, so that was just that was just bringing it all home. And, and Of course, we had more, you know, too much fun doing that film, but I was just proud of those guys for putting it together.
0: Yeah, it was so smart the way it was so satirical. Talking right now with Omar Epps. Uh, Speaking of sports movies, again, like you said, you wanted to play for the Cowboys one day. You love football. Play Pop Warner. How was your basketball skills when you did Love and Basketball in 2000? Basketball skills
2: weren't too shabby, but, you know, I had to polish up, you know, get some shin splints and and work it out. Get a a couple twisted ankles, but, um, you know, I I had to polish it up. Make it look good on screen, but I had, I had fun doing that film as well.
0: Yeah, I thought you really had great chem- memories, man. I was gonna say, yeah, <laughs> we're taking it to memory lane here. You had great chemistry, I thought, with Sanaa Lathan in that movie. I know people of a certain age; they always think about love and basketball. Reminds them of their own youth, their own memories. I thought you and her really connected well in that film.
2: Yeah, no, we did. I think that was kind of the the, the, the secret sauce, you know, that, that our chemistry and just because it, you know people believed in that love story and they wanted to see you know our characters win in the end so it you know it's it's been great to see like these younger generation still taken to that film as well as some of these others but they really they love loving basketball now so that's that's kind of mind-blowing
0: no question as i mentioned these are a series of films you've done in movies that have been beloved but also you were part of the show house uh, Hugh Laurie oh, yeah. was was so great in that show. Uh, tell me about him because, you know, he was a comedic actor in England. You, you know, the Hugh and Laurie and all the rest of it. and then he's playing this dramatic actor in the American accent and uh, the character was so funny the way it was done. He was so cranky. Tell me about working with Hugh Laurie.
2: Hugh was great, man. I mean, he's just a, a, a great guy and a truly powerful artist. It's funny because I remember I think the first season at one point we had, because he, he was really working hard on the American accent and I think we had like a we had a, a, either a British DP or or director, and like a Scottish DP or director on the set at the same time, and they kept talking to him in the accent. And he was, <laughs> 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 he just wanted to get away from them because he was really trying to get the American accent down. And it was it was funny because sometimes you know it, it'd be some sort of a phrase, and he'd come to one of us like, "How do you say? It? Do you say it like this, or do you put the inflection here?" But yeah, that you know, house was. Um, I kind of think of it as the last of the Mohicans, you know, when it comes to television, that was a, that was a great ride. Great ride.
0: Um, <laughs> that's pretty funny about the DP and the accent. Was it one of those situations where, cause his character was so irascible and such a curmudgeon. Did Hugh kind of try to stay in character or was he a lot looser and lighter when the cameras were not rolling? No, no,
2: he was a sweet guy. I think that, you know, because the, the, the show was a drama, a lot of the situations were intense, but just as, as Hugh was a, you know, funny guy, um, just a sweet guy. And, and um, so he, he, you know, his demeanor was, he was himself, but, you know, again, we were doing this dramatic medical show where like people are always at the end of the rope or something like that. So it was, it was an intense set. You know what I mean?
0: I could totally imagine that. We're talking with Omar Epps, his new film Traffic coming up Friday, April 20th. We'll get into that in just one second. But you mentioned the fact you're a Cowboys fan and Des Bryant in the news. I got to find out from you. Are you okay with Dez now leaving the Cowboys?
2: I'm not okay. I I personally think, you know, Des has got another good 3-4. I'm kind of bewildered because it just okay, then what are we doing? Like, you know, usually teams make a big move like that and then the next week they announce something else to sort of counter that and we haven't. So, I'm just I don't know. I'm kind of just bewildered. Um, you know, and, and Des, man, he he was a great player, you know, um I think he deserved to go out better than that. You know what I mean? I, I wanted him to retire Cowboy, but, you know, the timing that they did it, and I don't know. Who knows what goes on behind the scenes, but, you know, I wish him the best.
0: And and he's obviously a guy with a chip on his shoulder saying he wants to go to another NFC East teams. So it could be really interesting. Who knows? Imagine he goes to the Giants, they face the Cowboys.
2: I don't want him to go to the Giants. I don't want him to go to in our division at all, but <laughs> stranger things have happened. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, the Patriots end up picking him up,
0: you yeah. know? No doubt about that. They could use a good receiver like Des Bryant. It's funny. You know, you did the program. Obviously, we're so good in that movie. But we always talk about here at ESPN how much you look like Mike Tomlin. You could play him in the biopic, like as a coach. How often do people say that you resemble him or look like the Steelers' head coach?
2: It's funny because we've never met before. So I'm wondering, do people give him the same amount? (laughs) Do people (laughs) tell him he looks like me? And then it sucks because he's the Steelers' head coach. And so, you know, I, I... that's like a bitter rival because I'm a Cowboy fan, so it's also weird.
0: <laughs> oh, I could imagine. You're like, "Hey, man, love Roethlisberger." You're like, yeah, okay, whatever, leave me alone, please. And people are asking him, "Hey, tell me about <laughs> Latham. love him basketball." I'm like, get out of here, leave me alone. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Traffic is the new film with Paula Patton. Tell me all about it. Why should people go check it out?
2: Oh man, this is an amazing film. It's it's a romance that turns into a really dark suspense thriller. Um, you know, and the underlying message is about human trafficking which is like you know a a huge problem worldwide and huge problem domestically but it's a really entertaining movie it's been it's been so fun to like go to screenings with audiences and they're like (laughs) people are yelling at the screen other people are just so frightened and strapped into their seats but it's a it's a hell of a ride man really good movie
0: awesome and what's paula Patton like to work with i love her work
2: oh she's amazing such a talented artist you know, we had we we've known each other for years, you know, just cordially in the business and, you know, to get the chance to work together. We were both super excited about that. Um, Laz Alonzo's in it, Rosalind Sanchez is in it. Um, it's written and directed by Dion Taylor, who's a, a star. This guy's a the immensely talented filmmaker. Um and we had a blast making this film, but it you know, it, we we're talking about something that's a, a very profound issue and it's been really good to have been a part of something that entertains as well as inform.
0: That's beautifully said. Go check out Traffic starring Omar Epps. One more for you because our buddy Rick Passmore who works on the podcast loves the movie Brother with Takeshi Kitano. How many people mentioned that oh, movie yeah. to
2: you? That's okay, that's a good one. There, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was an amazing experience. Uh, Takeshi Kitano, they call him Beat Katano's a huge um um star in, in in Japan and this was his first uh American film I believe and it was just a really unique experience because, you know, he did he didn't speak English and obviously I don't speak Japanese. So, you know, he would have his translator there and he had a very unique filmmaking style. It was more like doing stage because he didn't do a b He did like one take like you just and then that's it. So it was really like being on stage. Um, but that was a I I had a blast doing that film as well.
0: That's awesome. Go check out Traffic Starring Omar Epps. Thanks so much, man, for the stories and going down memory lane. Obviously, you've had a terrific career, and I hope the new move is a huge success. And best of luck to your Cowboys.
2: Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate
0: you.
1: They always told Will he was too short to play basketball, but Will never listened. Will let his work ethic do the talking for him, always in the gym, always running drills. Will knew where there was a will, there was a way, and he was Will. But then... After his second child was born, he realized the pros were all way better than him, so Will gave up and buried his high tops in a tearful ceremony. But one day, he heard that Geico could save him money on car insurance, so he switched and saved a bunch, which was awesome.
0: All right, Omar Apps, many thanks to him. Really appreciate his insight and being willing to tell those stories. Man, talking about Tupac. Passmore made his day talking about Brother and Beat Takeshi. Great stories there. Best of luck to his cowboys. Mark Razzo is the director of a new film called Kodachrome. It's time to talk to Mark right now on (laughs) Cinephile. I mentioned my buddy Puffy earlier, friend of a friend, Mark Razzo joining us now on Cinephile. He's the director of a terrific new movie called Kodachrome. It's available on Netflix this Friday, April 20th. Mark, the last time I saw you... Uh, Was it spring training? I want to say five years ago. Look how much both of our lives have changed since then.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was spring training. It was in Tampa. I think Tampa, yeah. Um, Wow. That was... uh before the Jays had their little moment. <laughs>
0: That's true. It was before the Jays were, were glory to success. And maybe this team will be better this year than we think. But um, congrats on Kodachrome, man. I Thank you for sending me the link. And like I said, everybody can check it out on Netflix this Friday. Terrific father and son story. I thought you enlisted excellent performances from Jason Sudeikis, Ed Harris, and so many others. I want to start with Sudeikis because this is a guy who a lot of people know for his comedic work. And I could imagine he probably jumped at the chance to play this role of a son who has a terrible relationship with his father and now is, you know, feels kind of drawn back by the years of neglect that he should help him out because his father's dying, even though he's incredibly reluctant to do so. And I love the dialogue in the movie because both these guys do not pull punches when they come at each other. But I imagine a guy like Sudeikis is thinking, you know what? This is a good way for me to break against type. I can do drama. I can try some other things. What do you think was it when you approached him with this script that made him want to do the movie?
3: it's a, it's a weird story because uh i i actually came on board you know the script, the script had been around for a while in different iterations and when i had came on board jason had read it before before i was actually on board so he had knew he had known the script um, so the first person we cast was ed and then when we started casting the the Matt character um the producers were like by the way jason Sudeikis has read this already and loves it do you want to meet with him I'm like yeah sure i'll i'll meet with him um, and, you know, I was a little worried, to be honest, that, you know, he was going to come at this um, f- from a more comedic perspective. I-, I feel like the movie in my mind was always like a drama with moments of levity or, you know, the the bad version is a not very funny comedy. Um, so I didn't want to make that version of the film. So when I sat down with Jason, it was just, you know, we immediately hit it off. He understood it. He got it. He's a photographer. He's a pretty exceptional photographer i mean he shoots on film all the time he showed me his portfolio um he also his son and my son were born about a week apart and same age and we were kind of going through the same thing some of the things that drew me to the project um this kind of trying to balance family life and and your creative life at the same time drew him to the project so we totally hit it off he totally got it um, it was a great meeting, and uh, yeah, you know, I was just my only worry was that he was going to come at it from a more comedic aspect, but he wanted, to, you know, he's really looking to sink his teeth into drama and, and do and do, um, you know, anything that kind of inspires him.
0: Yeah, a drama with moments of levity is a great way to describe it, because you're right. You want to have an actor who can handle the comedic timing, and like I said, he's got some good verbal jousting with Ed Harris, but at heart, it is a very soulful movie and a story that's genuinely about redemption. You mentioned Ed Harris signed on first. What was it like directing him? Obviously a talented actor, a guy who's in so many other movies. For a young director like yourself, a polite, genteel Canadian, how intimidating <laughs> was Ed Harris on set?
3: Yeah, so Ed, uh, you know, my first meeting with Ed, Ed was intimidating. Um, I just, you know, I'm. You, you described how, <laughs> you described it already. He's, you know, he's an intimidating guy, and he's a, he's a wonderful actor. And when we got on set, I give him so much credit because he made it so easy for me to to direct him. He really just opened himself up, and you know, first day just said, "Listen, just tell me what you want, and I'll do it." Um, and you know, I didn't have to tell him a whole lot because he's he's a fantastic actor. Um, so I really, it was a great experience for me. He. I tried. I tried to learn as much as I could from him in a weird way. You know, he's still the director of the film, but just watching his process, how he, how he he gets on set and he goes around to every single member of the crew and introduces himself and says hello and just like, you no, know, something I've never seen before. Um, my favorite story is that Ed was very determined to have real film in the camera during the whole film, so he was he was shooting the whole time. Um, he plays a photographer in the film. And then at the end of the at the end of the film, he went around to all the crew members and cast members and people, and he had been taking pictures of them this whole time, and he gave them the photos that he had taken. So we all have uh, we all have photos of ourselves that Ed Harris took, which is quite cool.
0: Oh, that's great, man. We're talking with Mark Razzo. He is the director of a new film, Kodachrome. It's coming out on Netflix this Friday, April twentieth. It's terrific. You should check it out. I, I love that scene where Ed Harris is in the car and he's talking about how happiness is overrated and he's talking about artists are just such miserable SOBs, and he uses Picasso's example, and Hemingway as well. Because it made me think of my favorite Ed Harris movie, which is Pollock. I thought he was incredible in that movie. It was a real passion project for him. He started, it, he directed it. Marsha Gay Harden won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. But I thought it was such a good example of him talking about artists and maybe referencing one of his other movies in a way as well.
3: I know. We, we actually contemplated whether we should throw Pollock in there. <laughs> That's one of the references, but we decided... Uh, we decided against it. Yeah, he was great in that movie. And you know what, it was in our very first meeting, he was, uh, he was sharing stories about, about, um, about when he directed Paul, like it was the first film he directed. And just, you know, I think first day, there was a problem and he was already, it was already like six hours over and they hadn't got a shot. And he, and he, part of it, he was finding financing for, and he just kind of that's it. Um, I, he jumped full into the kind of the abrasiveness of it and, and took it over. And I thought he deserved a, an Academy Award for that performance.
0: I agree, man. He was um, awesome. Yeah. Kodachrome is a movie which, and this is where I think is tricky for you, Mark, because I think people go, all right, uh, it's a road movie, father and son story. It's about redemption. Okay, I've seen these beats played before. I can sense maybe where the story is going to go. But it's a good reminder that every story has been told. It's just in how you tell it and what makes a story unique and what makes it wonderful is the way you let it unfold. And I think as a director, you have a lot of patience and grace in that you just let the performances hold. And like I said, excellent dialogue where it's biting. But eventually, you do have to make that turn. Yeah, It has to go from these guys are insulting each other and batting to the back and forth and years of uh, resentment and frustration and rage is coming up. But eventually, there has to be some sort of a turn. So I'm curious as a director, how did you balance that, try to overcome whatever cliches you might get or an audience may anticipate in a father-son movie?
3: Mm-hmm. It's a good question. You know, it, uh, immediately um, that's your fear um, that that this is just going to feel like any other movie. So uh, uh, off the bat, I try to make it feel arti- as art- artful as possible. Um, I really believe that movies are art uh, is an art form and, and you need to make it as art- artful as possible. And so a lot of the choices we made kind of led to... Um, to letting this unfold in a certain way. Um, I wanted to be very restrained. Uh, I didn't want to, um, I I wanted to allow the performances, the opportunity to grow. And I I really wanted to to capture silent moments um, with Ed and Jason and and allow time for introspection. And, you know, I believe that allows audience members to put their own kind of, put themselves on the screen, so to say, get into the heads of the actors, um, feel as they feel, you know, the script is what it is. It's it's a three act structure where you hit your highs, you hit your lows, you have your midpoint, you have this, it's been done since Aristotle, basically, you know, this is, this is the way people make movies, but you don't want to give it away. You don't want, you don't want audience to be ahead of it. Um, So, you know, we did, we did things with big thing for me was like the moving camera versus the static camera, you know, when, when, when camera's static on Jason, he's down. When he's moving, he's free. So these are kind of these kind of tricks to do. Static, stats is, you know, kind of reminiscent of the photographer. His father's a photographer. So, you know, the the, the snapshot. Um, also putting Ed and Jason in the same frame was something I tried to avoid. Uh, basically until they reconcile. So you try to do, like, as a director, you try to do these visual things that allow the audience to kind of feel um, beyond the script so that so that they're they feel the weight of the moments. But, you know, it's a tough thing. You, you I just want to take my time. It's, a, it's always a fight because, you know, we live in a world where it's quick, quick, fast, fast, everything done. And, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly fighting and saying, let it breathe, let it breathe. Let, let's leave these characters. Let's stop seeing Jason Sudeikis. Let's stop seeing Ed Harris. Let's stop seeing Elizabeth Olson, Let's see these characters and let's go on this journey with them.
0: Kodachrome is a film, Netflix, Friday, April 20th. Tell me about, listen, you made another film, Copenhagen, but now this film, Kodachrome, premieres at Toronto Film Festival. Proud Canadian, you're with all the buddies, your brother Joseph, also in the industry. Shout out Irving Ho, we got Puffy, the whole crew. What's it like to have a film premiere at TIFF? And then what's the challenge? How do you get your movie sold?
3: Well, I've got to tell you, the whole TIFF experience was insane for me because I had to pull in like 80-some-odd tickets for friends and family. <laughs> And I was like literally on the red carpet, like giving my last two tickets away, like, okay, everyone's good. Everyone's seated. Everyone's seated. And then they're like, okay, you're doing present. And then, then it hit me. So it was kind of good that it was in Toronto because I wasn't nervous about the film. I was nervous about seating everyone. Um,
0: (laughs) That's funny. Yeah.
3: But, uh, you know, it was great. It, it showed, it it played at like the princess of Wales. which is a 2000 seat theater and it, it had a great reaction. Um, and, you know, I just have to sit back after and your your producers are feeding you, you know, this company's interested, this company's interested, this company's interested. And by Monday, we had made one of the biggest sales of the festival. Uh, Netflix bought it. It's going to, as you said, April 20th. I also want to let everyone know that it is going to be in theaters in select cities. Um, so it has a limited theatrical release in the U.S. So if you can see it in theater, see it in theater. But uh, we shot it on film as well, which was a wonderful experience. But yeah, you know, you just sit back. At that point, you know, after I make the film, it's out of my hands and and how people receive it and and who buys it, who sells it, it's all out of my control. I just have to kinda sit back and and watch.
0: I'm always curious of promotion of the film. You mentioned Elizabeth Olsen. in the movie, she's also very good. So you got Sadeakis, you got Olsen, you have Ed Harris. Do, do you uh, specifically as a director guy, hey, listen, guys, any promotion you can give, any shows you can hit, I'd appreciate it. Is the studio take care of that? Do the producers take care of that? How does that work to generate? Because all those three are big names. If they show up on Fallon or whatever and promote your movie, that's a big deal.
3: Yeah, no, it's great. And they've been doing a great job. And I think um, Jason's going to be on a couple late-night shows next week. He was on Ellen last week. Ed's doing a bunch of stuff. But really, really it comes down to the actor's willingness to do it. And we're lucky that um you know, we we all had a really good time making the film and we all still talk and we get along really, really well. Um for that, you know, six weeks we made the film, we became a little family. So they're really supportive of the film. Really we're all really proud of it. So they're doing their best to get it out there. And uh, you know, it's it's word of mouth, it's people seeing it, it's people letting each other know, but they're they're great.
0: The motif, last one for you about the film, the motif of this photographer who is traveling to this place to get the, the print developed, to me it worked on multiple levels. Because one, I, I like just the idea of this artist as a purist and he's kind of this relic of the past, but also just on a personal level. Uh, and I'm curious what your take is on this, Mark. The people who I know are filmmakers really love shooting on film, as you mentioned, that there's this aversion to shooting on digital. There's this aversion now. Uh, to the way films are marketed and the way that they're processed, etc. Are you one of those purists who feel like, Hey man, if I could shoot it on film always, I would. Or do you just say, listen, if the digital is the way to go now, that's what we're doing.
3: To be honest, I have respect for both. I think if you are in a position to shoot on film, uh, you should, but I, I understand that not everyone is in that position. And I think it's extremely important that digital is around and that it Afford the opportunity for young filmmakers to go and make their films, for people to make short films. Um, so I have an appreciate, I have a strong appreciation for both. But you know, it, it film is it's expensive and it's not easy and it's difficult and there's not a lot of places that process it. And these are all realities. So not everyone can do it. But if you can do it, I think you should do it.
0: A heady ride so far. I hope Kodachrome is a huge hit for you. Like you said, it'll be in some theaters, limited release, but also available on Netflix Friday, April 20th. What are you working on now? I know you guys always have five projects in the go. Is there anything you can tell us you're working on now?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, me and my brother Joseph wrote this, uh, wrote a script together that's, um we're very, very excited about, a little bit different, grounded sci-fi. Um, hope to make some announcements on that in the near future, as well as... Um, there's a Western that that I'm attached to uh, direct that uh, we have some cast on, and it's exciting, and hope to be able to announce that soon. You know, I never like getting ahead of myself because these things fall apart very quickly, but hopefully I'll be making a movie soon um, and getting out of this kind of, you know, this feel <laughs> a little bit. You want to expand a little
0: bit. Well, it's great, man. Seriously, congrats on Kodachrome. The boys were telling me about it when it premiered at TIFF. And I'm so happy, like you said, you're able to make a great sale at the festival. I hope it's a huge hit. It's funny, you know, in years past, you'd say, oh, it's on Netflix. would be an afterthought. Now it's a win. That's like the best thing going on. Hey, my movie's on Netflix. That's awesome.
3: I know. Yeah, I know it's getting some bad bad press lately. But as a as a filmmaker, as an artist, the fact that your uh, movie's on a, you know, somewhere that has 100 million subscribers worldwide, it just means it's going to get to be seen. And that's super exciting.
0: Chrome is the film, Friday, April 20th. It stars Jason Sudeikis, Ed Harris, Elizabeth Olsen. It's terrific. Mark Razzo is the director. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate it, man. Go Jays.
3: I appreciate it, too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let me tell you something, guys. I understand the problem with hair loss. I've had my own issues with the receding hairline and losing hair, but I'm telling you, I've got great news. 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. Okay, that's not the good news. Here's the good news. When you start to notice hair loss, it's actually too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. That hairline, like I tell you, slowly moving backwards. Any bald spots yet? How are you going to feel a year from now if it's business as usual up there? I ask you, do you want a bald spot to pop up? You want to do something about it first. You want a hairline to recede? You want to take care of it first. You want answers? I got answers. 4 You want answers. A one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and other wellness supplements for men. I'm telling you, thanks to science, baldness is actually just optional now. HIMS connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat your hair loss. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits. Nobody's going to see you doing anything about your hair. You're saving hours by going to fourhims.com. Answer a few quick questions. Doctors will review it. They'll prescribe it for you. And the products are shipped directly to your door. I'm telling you, it could not be easier. So take care of it, all right? Order now. My listeners get a f- trial month of HIMS for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See the website for full details, but this would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy, and who needs that? Go to hymns.com slash Cinephile. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Cinephile, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. For hymns.com slash Cinephile. He's just an average man
4: with an average, average life. life,
1: and his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley, first and foremost. playing On to my, my strengths. Strength. Dan stands. is... I thought it was a little little much.
0: Everyman. All right, so I like the fact with Every Man, you you went hard out of the gate midnight in Paris, immediately questioned your own instincts, and went gone in 60 seconds. So I'm
1: curious if there's a middle ground here for Everyman. Along came Polly. A 2004 <laughs> rom-com starring Ben Stiller and Jennifer Aniston. There's a lot more comedy than romance, so it's a solid selection for any guy on date night. Stiller plays Ruben Pfiffer, a risk assessment analyst who walks in on his wife with the scuba instructor on the first day of their honeymoon. The cast includes a trio of cinephile favorites in Alec Baldwin as Ruben's boss. Yep. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Ruben's best friend from childhood. Rain dance. And Hank Azaria as the <laughs> aforementioned scuba instructor. Right. Rubin returns to New York where he runs into a middle school classmate named Polly. That's Jennifer Aniston's character. Polly is nothing like Ruben. She likes ethnic food. He has irritable bowel syndrome. She likes to go salsa dancing. He can't dance. She has no real career or life plan, and he works for a high-profile insurance company. She lives life freely. He operates out of fear and chooses the mathematically best option in any scenario. They endure some painfully awkward dates, including one with a bathroom scene reminiscent of Dumb and Dumber, but somehow, inexplicably, they continue seeing each other. That is, until Ruben's wife comes back into the picture. And Ruben must decide if his relationship with Polly is just a fling, as she calls it, or something worth pursuing. The film is about taking risks and embracing uncertainty, and it's also called Along Came Polly, so I think you can guess what he decides. Stiller and Aniston may be the headliners, but the best moments of the film involve Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's
0: what I'm talking about.
1: In a rare comedic performance, Hoffman is responsible for the most uproarious scenes, including one in which he tells Stiller that the two of them need to leave an art show because he sharted. Sharted. He thought he had to fart, but (laughs) came out. The two basketball scenes, let it rain, raindrops, (laughs) raindrops, also elicit big laughs. With a runtime of 90 minutes, Along Came Polly is a quick, funny film with a moral message. Putting yourself out there and leaning into vulnerability can lead to, as Alec Baldwin's character says, good things.
0: You're never going to top that. That's the best every man we're ever going to do. Along Came Polly. Exquisitely written. That's a better review than that movie deserves, but it's an entertaining movie. And a fun one. And I did not realize the trio of cinephile favorites. Obviously, Seymour Hoffman's unbelievable, but I forgot his name. Alec Baldwin, Alon K. Polly. Check it out. All right. Rob Lemley is an avid supporter of cinephile. He's a terrific producer I work with here at ESPN, but he's also a big movie fan. And even if he can't watch the movies, he listens to the podcast and offers me excellent advice. Even if it's something I don't agree with, I appreciate the fact Lem is always offering his input. And so... In a manner of paying it forward here, it's time that Rob Lemley takes the spotlight. He is reviewing, because he had this idea actually last year about, in honor of baseball season, in honor of the DH, having a designated reviewer. So I've done that before with Mike Benzani. And now Rob Lemley is my designated reviewer when it comes to the soccer film, because you are the soccer guy. Lem, how are we doing today?
4: I'm good, but first, what have you not agreed with? That's what I need to know.
0: I think that there was uh, you know, some quibbles with some of the production elements that we do around here. You, you, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Well, but... <laughs>
4: n- never production elements. I'm not throwing Dan under the bus here. I think it's uh, produced to a so, well, uh, T. It, it, it's never that. So
0: what's this movie and what's it all about?
4: So Celtic Soul, it's uh, Jay Baruchel, fellow Canadian, and uh, Owen O'Callaghan. Uh, Irishman, Fox soccer commentator um, in the past, much like our boy Maxi Bretos, right? Um,
0: <laughs> Maxi, I like
4: it. You, you know, it's a bromance. It's a road trip. Uh, those two guys meet uh, in the old-fashioned way, just like you and Ben uh, through Twitter. barrichelle is a huge soccer fan, a huge fan of Celtic football, which is one of the biggest programs in uh, in Scotland. And uh, he and uh, O'Callaghan decide they're going to, uh, meet, take a road trip, uh, do the bucket list thing and go see Celtic play because they're both huge fans of Celtic. And, uh, you know, that turns into a quest for Baruchel's, uh heritage because his mother's Irish and, uh, of Irish descent. And they decide to make it a, a two-prong trip. They're going to go, uh, from Canada to Ireland, travel to Baruchel's homeland of sorts. And, uh, visit where his mother's family came from, and then in turn, in the second part, go see Celtic play. It was entertaining. If you like shell, you're going to love this. And if you like soccer, you're going to like it. Uh, It didn't go too deep into Celtic football. Celtic and Ranger are are massive rivals, and it never touched that, which I thought was kind of a a downfall. But uh, it's got its moments. The scenery is beautiful. It had its moments of laughter and and fun stuff that goes on. A lot of F-bombs, man. Uh, I don't know if the kids could watch it there might be some air muff time on this. It was a little bit nostalgic. It it gave me uh, enough football to make me happy. And it gave me enough bear shell uh, that if you're into his type of humor, that uh, I think you'd be entertained by it. Um, It didn't go too deep. Uh, Again, you got to see some beautiful scenery in Ireland and Scotland. My only, you know, prior knowledge of Scottish film scenery was either train spotting or Braveheart. So, That was the basis of my knowledge for uh, a Scotland in film. It was worth the watch if you like soccer and if you like Barichello. If you don't like Barichello, you're not going to like this at all because he is, uh, you know, he's a cup of tea that might not appeal to everybody. I don't know if you'd agree with that as far as style.
0: Well, I like you, and I can't wait to see what Cinephile thinks about you, Rob Lemley, guest reviewer of Celtic Soul. Thanks, buddy. I'll see you tonight. Anytime, bud. All right, thanks as much as always for listening to Cinephile. Find us on Twitter, Cinephile ESPN. Find us on Instagram as well. Rick Passmore did not have an in-defense of this week, but he is along for the ride. Ricky, just say some words just so people know you are still part of the collaboration right
1: now. Oh, I'm still here, and I'm still running that Twitter page. It's not but As much as people are going to go, like, he's double-dipping, it's like, I run the Twitter page. <laughs> yeah. uh, I try to keep it very professional and, and get back to when people when I can. And then I'll respond as myself when I have the opinion. I do not speak fully on behalf of the Cinephile uh, brand. So reviews come through. They come through me. Opinions come through me. But just notes, facts, and news come through Cinephile.
0: But I like the fact that we're generally simpatico. And if you're going to speak on my behalf, you know me well enough to know what would endorse, what I would enjoy, etc. Like if you're retweeting articles and says, like, all right, he would like this because he likes... Michael Shannon or whatever. Exactly. And, go from there. and, and our listeners
1: way, way, as well. Our listeners, like, just trying to give them information and notes of what our listeners may may or may not like. Yeah,
0: correct. And we are going to be a part of Tribeca Film Festival. So the next time we come to you, fingers crossed in a fall, we'll have some content for you uh, from Tribeca. So me and Passmore are going to be up there. And, of course, Dan Stanzik, a part of the production, along with Ben Lines as well. Thanks so much to my guests, Omar Epps, New Film Traffic, Mark Razzo, his film Kodachrome, Always a ton of fun. So thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. We'll see you next time with a report from the Drive Pekka Film Festival. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.
3: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement.